0: Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show
1: and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern, and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. As
0: usual, our guests will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. We have with us tonight neurosurgeon Dr. Richard Rowe, and we're doing two episodes on brain death because there is some debate about whether brain death is real death or not. And so he's leading off the brain death is real death episode and then we'll have Father Tad Paholchik from the National Catholic Bioethics Center on. But uh, Richard's gonna share with us today what is done for a brain death evaluation. So Richard, welcome back to Doctor Doctor and you know you completed your neurosurgery training medical college of Georgia in Augusta. He lives now in Macon, Georgia, where he works at the Georgia Neurologic Institute. He's a CMA guild president and state director for the CMA in Georgia. Good to have you back,
2: Richard. Thank you. It's good to be here.
0: You know, Richard, you regularly operate on the brains of patients. And like all organs, the brain can fail. But we never talk about brain failure, even though we talk about heart failure or kidney failure. Why is that?
2: Well, I think the term brain death is so ingrained in our lexicon. It's the language that we use to convey something. And I think it works well in uh, 2008, the President's Council on Bioethics actually did propose a term called total brain failure, but it never caught on and has sort of been dropped by the wayside.
1: So it's the same thing. Richard, what, what exactly is brain death?
2: Well, brain death is the irreversible cessation of brain activity, of cerebral function and brain stem function. And when I talk with patients' families about brain death, I tell them, The brain is made up of the cerebral hemispheres and it's made up of the brain stem. The cerebral hemispheres is that part of the brain that does all our thinking for us. It's where our memories are stored, our language is. And it sits on top of the brain stem uh, the way that a scoop of ice cream sits on top of uh, an ice cream cone. Well, the brain stem is the part of the brain that does all the automatic functions for us. When something touches your eyes, you blink. When something... uh, sticks in the back of your throat, you gag, you breathe, and you do all of those things without having to think about it. Those are brain stem reflexes. And when there's an injury to the brain that disconnects the cerebral hemispheres from the brain stem, then that creates what is called a coma. The person is non arousable, they're in a non arousable state, but they still may have brain stem functions where they would still. Um, gag if you stuck something in the back of their throat or blink or their eyes may react to light, but when they've had a catastrophic injury where not only are the cerebral hemispheres disconnected functionally from the brainstem, but also the brainstem functions are no longer working so that they're not uh, having those normal brainstem reflexes, including not being able to initiate a breath. When someone is in that state and it's been confirmed by two physicians and there's a known cause and it's felt that it's irreversible, then that person would meet the criteria for what we call brain death.
0: And how often are you called to a patient to see if they have brain death?
2: Well, I I work in a a large referral center, a level one trauma center, and I have uh, four other partners. And I would say that they're, practice in mind is about the same. So probably a couple of times a month, sometimes more, sometimes less, that we would be called each one of us would be called uh, to do that.
1: And and what are some of the typical reasons that patients are thought to be brain dead?
2: Well, usually it's it is going to be a catastrophic injury. It can be trauma. It can be an intracerebral hemorrhage that results in a blood clot that fills portions of the brain, it can be the result of anoxic injury where the brain doesn't get enough oxygen, such as uh, a, a drowning incident or a near drowning incident. Um, so those are the kinds of things that we see that we would be called on to determine if someone has brain activity.
1: Are, are all of these patients on ventilators by the time you you meet them?
2: Yes. If, if someone's exam is so poor that they are being considered Uh, and evaluated for possible brain death, it implies that their injury is so severe that they would not be able to initiate breaths on their own. Usually these patients are ventilated in the field by the emergency medical technicians or they're uh, intubated in the emergency room when they arrive. But almost, I would say, universally the patients that we see that are being evaluated for brain death are on a ventilator.
0: So if brain death were determined... And uh, the ventilator is turned off and they would die if they truly are brain dead, correct?
2: That is correct. If someone it meets the criteria for brain death, part of that determination of brain death includes what is called an apnea test, where we take them off of the ventilator and give them over five minutes and sometimes as much as 10 or 15 minutes to try to breathe on their own to see if they initiate any type of breath. And if they fail to do that, then, then they would meet the criteria for brain death.
0: Now, you've told us before that when you go into these patients, you've usually been following them for a while before you actually do the tests for brain death. So on the day that you do the test for brain death, what are you doing in the patient's room with the patient?
2: Well, we've already determined because we've been following, we usually know why they are being evaluated for brain death, what the source of their lack of responsivity is. So we need to know that it's irreversible. We need to know that their temperature is normal. We need to know that there are no drugs on board such as uh, illicit drugs or muscle relaxants or sedatives that have been given in transit to the hospital or while they're in the hospital. We need to know that all of that is gone. And then once we know that, then what we would do is evaluate for brain stem activities. They, they would already obviously be in a coma if we're being called to evaluate them for this reason. But then we want to know, are there brainstem reflexes that we can determine? And that's done by shining a light in their eyes or touching something to their pupil. Um, it's done by sticking something down their throat or doing cold water in the ear, looking for specific signs that the brain stem reflexes are there or they are not there. And then finally, the, the last test that we do, as I mentioned, is called an apnea test. And if those things are done by two physicians and they come up with the same results, then that person would meet criteria for uh, death by criteria.
1: Now, Richard, we're talking a lot about the brain stem. That's where a lot of the autonomic functions go on that you had mentioned. Are, are there any other kind of tests that you do to check out the cerebral hemispheres or is there a situation where the cerebral hemispheres may be functioning even though they have a brain stem incident? Does that get confusing, or is there other testing you do there?
2: There are additional tests that are that can be done but are not required. The assumption is that if someone's brain is so injured that we are doing a brain death, death examination is that the cerebral hemispheres are not working. And the reason for that is that they've usually had some type of severe trauma that has caused their brain to swell so much inside the skull that it's run out of room to swell. So the pressure rises and blood can no longer perfuse the brain. So um, when that happens, if the brain's not getting blood, then the brain obviously is not going to survive. So the assumption generally is that if, if they are undergoing a brain death examination, their deep, coma that they're in implies that their cerebral hemispheres are not working so I've heard, studies- of s-
0: I've heard of some doctors who think that tests that used to be done should be brought back like an antidiuretic hormone test which is released uh you know in the middle of the brain the hypothalamus and pituitary area and if that is keeping their their blood fluids at you know correct levels that's a sign that the brain is working is that true or not
2: well, that's a debatable point and is mostly debated in academic circles. Most patients who who have a brain, who meet the criteria for brain death, will go into a condition where there is a complete absence of antidiuretic hormone. But the that hormone comes from the pituitary gland, which sits underneath the brain in a specialized compartment. And there may be some uh, auxiliary blood flow that feeds that little area that allows for the antidiuretic hormone to still perfuse and uh, for patients to still have that in their blood system. So it's not, it's not required that we do that and in fact it would be rare that anybody does it other than in a, in a clinical setting where they are doing academic research.
1: Richard, you you know, one of the things when I talk to folks who are kind of suspicious of the idea of brain death, there's this idea that, well, if you got a different doctor, you'd get a different answer. Do you see that in practice, that people would disagree on the diagnosis of brain death, or is it pretty much universally agreed upon for a specific patient? Well, in
2: 1981, after a presidential commission, there was a consensus that was called the Uniform Determination of uh, Brain Death or Uniform uniform Determination of Death. And in that, they set down principles on how brain death should be determined, although they left it to some degree for medical, uh, medical flexibility, I guess, would be the term. As a general rule, though, the uh, American Academy of Neurology and all of the organizations that do brain death examinations have pretty well come to a clear consensus on the criteria for brain death, just as I outlined. And that's pretty much standard across states. And that's the reason that they wanted to have a uniform determination. So there wasn't a question that you're brain dead in one state and you're not brain dead in another state. So, I read
0: about something called the Lazarus sign. It's actually how people can move when a ventilator is removed. Have you ever seen that? And would that be a sign that they aren't brain dead if they start moving their arms when the ventilator is pulled
2: out? Well, I've been doing this uh, both in training and as an attending neurosurgeon for 30 years, and I've never seen the Lazarus sign. I've uh, read about it. It is okay. very rare. But it is not a sign of brain activity. It's most likely, although we don't understand it clearly, it's most likely a spinal reflex. A more common reflex, spinal reflex that you do see is if you, in some patients who are clinically brain dead, if you touch the bottom of their foot, they will withdraw their foot the same way that if they stepped on a tack, they would draw their foot back from the tack. And that's just something that has developed so that you don't have to wait for your brain to tell you you're <laughs> stepping on attack. You can move your foot before the reflex or before the impulse ever gets to the brain and do less damage to your foot. And that's a spinal reflex, which is totally separate from brain stem reflexes.
0: I've read that some people think that there should be absence of spinal reflexes for there to be brain death. Is there anybody who really holds this view?
2: No, I don't think so. I think most people would argue that, uh, although spinal reflexes are present in maybe 20% of patients who meet the criteria for brain death, spinal reflexes are just that. They're disconnected from the, from the brain stem and brain and should be viewed that way, even though they do cause movement and cause signs that can be confused to somebody who's not used to seeing them. In your last 30 seconds, what are the key points
0: you'd like listeners to remember about testing for brain death?
2: Well, I would just say that patients' families oftentimes are there throughout this whole process. And although they are initially optimistic about how their loved one is going to do, by the end of it, they've seen their patients, their families' reflexes drop off and come to the conclusion that the person's no longer there. So they they have come to a conclusion that we are about to verify with a brain death examination.
0: Richard, you have been tremendous. Thank you for giving us this basis that will help us with Father Tad. Before the break, I have to ask our trivia question of the day, so we're going to get sciency. As Richard mentioned, there are 12 cranial nerves that connect from the brain to either the skin, muscle, or some special organ in the head or neck. Most of them connect to the brain stem. My question is, how many of these 12 nerves connect directly to the cerebral hemispheres instead of the brain? It's one, two, three, four, five. The first nerve is the olfactory for smell. The second is the optic for sight. The third and fourth are two uh, nerves that control muscles of the eyes. And finally, the trigeminal nerve, which provides feeling to most of the face. We'll be back with more here on Dr. Doctor from the virtual studios of, studios of Redeemer Radio after the break. And we're back with our special guest of the day, Father Tad Paholczyk. He has a PhD, a doctorate in neuroscience from Yale, and did postdoctoral work at Harvard. He's also a priest of the Diocese of Fall River, Massachusetts, and serves as the Director of Education at the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. Father Tad, welcome to Dr. Doctor.
3: Thank you so much, Tom and Andrew. Great to be with you.
0: Oh, and we're delighted. You know, before 1960, death was universally understood to be the end of a heartbeat and breathing. Uh, In fact, in former times, it said that a pope wasn't declared dead until a mirror was held up under his nose or over his mouth to make sure that it didn't fog up. So, and some have asserted that death being a simple binary, you know, yes or no decision is simple enough that even a child can tell if someone is alive or dead. But then something happened. And what was it that happened that there was a new definition of death besides breathing and heartbeat stopping?
3: Well, it largely flowed out of the fact of the development of the ventilator. This caused the new situation to arise where you could have individuals who would uh, enter a situation in which basically all brain function had ceased. uh, As you know, measurable by some of the parameters that Dr. Rowe covered. And uh, yet you could maintain some functioning of lower subsystems in the body because you had this remarkable tool of the ventilator that would allow for oxygenation of those organs uh, to continue. And it would be possible to maintain some of that organ function, sometimes for periods long enough that organ retrieval for transplantation purposes could occur as well.
0: So then in 1968, the, the first definition of brain death was put forward in the Journal of the American Medical Association. They actually did it in an article called The Definition of Irreversible Coma. And, and the two reasons they talked about doing it is that, uh, you know, they say it's a burden on patients who suffer permanent loss of intellect and on their families. And secondly, because of the controversy in obtaining organs for transplantation. Now, a lot of Catholics we know look at this and have looked at it and say, wow, this sounds like an ends justify the means approach to, um, to medicine. How is it either that or how is it not that, Father Tad? Uh,
3: I think that 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 type of articulation of the situation is out there. And people have the sense that the criteria were developed sometimes for the purposes of ensuring organ procurement. But I think that really is an oversimplification. I think there was clearly the recognition that transplantation biology was taking off on its own. It was an expanding field. And there was also this recognition of what had happened due to ventilators becoming available uh, and working effectively. So these two kind of crossed, if you will, in such a way that it became possible to expand organ transplantation in ways that would not have been possible prior to the development of this way of recognizing that death had already occurred. You see, I think it's important to emphasize to the listeners that when one does an assessment of this type, one does not know the precise moment that death occurred. That's basically a spiritual reality. That's when the soul departs from the body. So what you have to do is look at other indicators that that happened at a prior time point, a prior time point that you're not able to specify. uh, And the whole series of tests that you carry out Will indicate that that occurred, and so in that sense, brain death is no different than some of the other approaches that have been used. So, for example, if you, you know, go out on outside a building and you see a, a body lying in the road, you pick it up, and there's rigor mortis, you would say, <laughs> well, that's an indication that death already occurred at some prior time point. You don't know precisely when. Same thing with cardiorespiratory. Um, Approaches and now brain death offers us another uh, way to look at this. And in fact, you might say that, you know, the cardiorespiratory uh, approach to assessing death is really kind of a proxy for brain death in the sense that once your breathing stops, I mean, the brain is going to shut off uh, and, and die summarily in very short order. You have, that tissue is exquisitely oxygen sensitive. So uh, these are all kind of, uh, these two approaches are intrinsically interconnected, if you will.
1: That's an interesting way of putting it that hadn't occurred to me before, that even cardiopulmonary, really, we're looking for symptoms of death, right?
3: Yes, precisely.
1: Those are other symptoms of death. You know, one of the things that uh, has been brought to me is that the only reference in this, you know, scientific article is that of, a, of Pope Pius XII, I believe. There's not other scientific literature that this is based on. It gives the impression that this idea of brain death was kind of created out of thin air. And and I know many faithful Catholics have trouble with this. Do, does it bother you, Father, that there's not? it's not really based on other literature at that time? Or should it not be so bothersome to us?
3: Yeah, I don't think it should be bothersome in the sense that you were dealing with a novel situation, so you wouldn't expect antecedent literature to exist. That literature had to be developed. But what I think was important from the clinical point of view was the recognition that when this situation arose and you verified through all the clinical testing, lack of reflexes, apnea, et cetera, um, those individuals, even if they remained on a ventilator, tended to, in short order, meaning hours, maybe days, uh, certainly not more than a week, typically without added interventions, they would, just, they would undergo what we call asystole, the heart would stop. So these individuals, you know, they lacked a kind of organismic integrity, they lacked a unity, a center of unity that had, you know, been lost when they died. And now you were sort of holding things together by a very, very thin uh, tape, if you will. And those organ systems could go for a little bit with added oxygen, but blood pressure would go, you know, crazy. Uh, other changes would occur, lack of uh, ability to regulate the body temperature, uh, electrolytes, etc. So all of that was a manifestation of this loss of integrity. Now, you can, in the present day, sort of step in and get aggressive when you've got one of these corpses that is being ventilated, and you can kind of push things. You've probably heard of the situations of pregnant women who have been declared brain dead. And heroic efforts can sometimes be made to shuttle that pregnancy to the point of viability to save the only remaining patient namely the child, the unborn child. Uh, and that will require sometimes uh, Herculean effort and will not always succeed because the body is just being going through this decomposition in very significant ways. And it's not a, a trivial proposal to keep a pregnancy like that moving uh, in the forward direction.
0: Father, to make this concrete for listeners, it just came to mind that someone that was in the news was Terry Scheivel would she have been considered somebody who satisfied brain death criteria?
3: Absolutely not. Not even close. And explain why. Yeah, she was not on a ventilator first. Secondly, she had clear ability to respond to the environment around her. I know her brother and her mother quite well, and they would tell me stories about visiting with her. And she was like a little child. I mean, she had significant damage to her brain. Nobody disputed that but rendered into a very simple state where her responsiveness was very limited. But she would you know, even get a little bit excited when family members would walk into the room. That is not even close to a brain-dead individual. Miles- so I
0: think that really helps listeners to know these are not the type of patients we're talking about. Like Richard said, 100% of these patients require a ventilator to keep their heart beating.
3: Yes, exactly. I think that's an important point, and it gets forgotten uh, quite quickly.
1: Father, you know, one of the things that people always ask about is, what does the Church teach about brain death? Has the Church made official comments about brain death?
3: Absolutely. You know, Pope St. John Paul II had an important address that he gave in the year 2000. And there's one line in there uh, that I think is a really important line. Uh, He says, the criterion adopted in more recent times for ascertaining the fact of death Namely, the complete and irreversible cessation of all brain activity, if rigorously applied, does not seem to conflict with the essential elements of a sound anthropology. So these are, you know, the words from a pope, now a saint, uh, indicating that the church does not find any fundamental issues or concerns in a kind of philosophical, anthropological arena. Now, the Church after that address, uh, and actually leading up to it as well, has issued a number of other statements through various Vatican dicasteries, uh, you know, for example, the Pontifical Academy for Life, the Pontifical Council for Healthcare Care Workers, uh, the Pontifical Academy for Sciences, Pontifical Council Corps Unum, etc., they've all issued statements saying that this represents a reasonable way to determine that an individual has died. So, I mean, just to read you a real short one, this Mm -hmm. was the Pontifical Council Cor Unum, has noted a growing consensus of opinion that considers a human being dead, in whom a total and irreversible absence of life activity in the brain has been established. So they're emphasizing this consensus, which uh, Dr. Rowe very nicely, you know, addressed in the sense that this is something that is broadly uh, accepted among medical professionals, and there is, you know, not significant debate really among them as a large body. I would say the debate occurs in smaller quarters in Catholic settings. Uh, there are a few, you know, outliers I would call them who are concerned about some of the uh, well conceptual issues but i think when you really chase down the nature of the concerns that they're raising what you end up finding is that they're concerned that the diagnostics are not being done carefully that somebody is cutting corners and i think that's a legitimate type of a concern for all of us to articulate i you know i remember a, a clinician a, a pulmonologist friend of mine he uh, is in florida he declares people brain dead you know every so often in his in his work and i remember him saying one time you know we've got three docs here at this hospital who declare people to be brain dead and there's one of the docs when he declares someone brain dead we say to ourselves ah, better double check you know better check things now that's not reassuring to hear no of course but i think the fact that, there, that, there's, that that has occurred on some level occasionally and coupled with the fact that we are not in a strongly pro-life society, people realize that there are some uh, possibilities for cutting corners. And, you know, when you talk about the need for organs, then if you are utilitarian in your outlook, it's like, oh, well, this is a way to get organs. Let's kind of push here a little bit on the edges. So those are legit concerns. And I mean, the medical profession, I think, has to be exquisitely attentive to be sure that the testing is rigorous. And that's really what the Pope said in his statement, that if that is rigorously carried out, then there's no fundamental conceptual problems.
1: And I really you know, like, thought that there, there's been cases that have made the, the news, you know, national news, of someone who was declared brain dead and then they recovered, or or a, a case I can think of um, that I recall where they were declared brain dead in one state and then moved to another state and they were not brain dead. Are these examples of the criteria just being misapplied? Are these potentially miracles of people who recover? What How should we interpret these?
3: Well, I, I can think of a specific case like you're mentioning of a young uh, girl, I think she was 12 or 13 in California, and she had her tonsils out and uh, some other complex tonsillectomy adjustments. Afterwards, she had sudden bleeding uh, and went unconscious, and then she was a day later or two declared brain dead. And her family, uh, they were an African-American family, did not believe this, and they were able to after wrangling with the hospital, the children's hospital uh, out there, I think it was in Oakland, they were able to get her released. They took her to New Jersey. And in New Jersey, you are able to reject a brain death uh, diagnosis and, you know, just move forward with the care of an individual. So they did that. And uh, I don't think that that means that if you were in New Jersey and they did the <laughs> same tests, you know, that they wouldn't declare the same thing. Uh, but it ended up, I think that this particular case, this young woman survived for a very extended period. It was uh, Jahai McMath case, you may have heard of her. Oh yes. And yeah, she survived for, I think, five more years on a ventilator, uh, and you know she grew, she went through puberty, uh, etc. And then she had some complications that arose later: infection, liver function problems, and she died in New Jersey. Uh, and I met her family. I actually went and visited them at one point. And I remember, you know, talking with her mom. And I said, "Look, I've reviewed some of the details of this case, and I remember when the brain." Death diagnosis was done out in California. In the lawsuits that followed, when you read those, they mentioned that there were six physicians who independently verified this, and you know, did the testing, came in and did the testing and verified it over and over. And and it was interesting how her mom reacted. She said, "You know, we were with Jahai day and night. We never left her hospital room." And she she then said. There weren't no six doctors who came in and and tested her again. So, in other words, what probably happened is there was one initial test, then they brought in an expert from Stanford who just looked through some of those results, Ah. gave the verification. You know, and so the whole again, there was this problem of testing not being done with the requisite seriousness and integrity and doubts. You know, there were some other problems with that hospital, having already undergone a lawsuit about somebody else who had a similar outcome and who survived long-term, and it costed them many millions in the lawsuit. So people speculated that, you know, these may have been some of the issues. So I think the bottom line here is that these things are complicated sometimes by very human factors, uh, including, you know, the fact that healthcare. Professionals are human, and there may be other other factors at play. But when it's done right, and I think you know, honestly, in my opinion, in most cases, thanks be to God, I think these diagnoses are done well. So uh, you know that that is not a discouraging uh, remark to say that we that sometimes the lines here are not respected. But I think in most instances they are.
0: I think that's a perfect explanatory story that will take us to the end of this segment. We'll be right back here on Dr. Doctor from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio here on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.
1: And we're back with Dr. Doctor talking to Father Tad today about a very interesting topic on brain death. And, you know, Father, we were talking before the break about the case of Jahai where she went on to live a few years after she was declared brain dead. And one of the points you brought up was that she continued to grow and underwent sexual maturity. You know, one, one of the questions that I've, I've heard a lot is, you know, how can somebody who's brain dead continue to really grow and metabolize and mature and things of that nature? How would you respond to that?
3: Yeah, well, I would agree that certainly undergoing sexual maturation implies that there is uh, function residing still in the hypothalamic pituitary axis. Uh, and so that individual, I think there would remain legitimate questions and doubts about the type of testing that may have been done. And in Jahai's case, I'm convinced that that was the situation that she, uh, she was not in fact dead. Uh, you know, having visited her, stood bedside there, prayed with the family. I mean, she was definitely on a ventilator. She was definitely compromised, but, her family would tell me stories about uh, even her ability in some cases to respond so i my you know my own personal theory and it 's nothing more than that is that she suffered severe brain stem injury uh, and this managed to kind of mask things and she was misdiagnosed, but her uh-huh. cerebral function i think there was still some residual sufficient for her to be able to manifest on occasion, some responsiveness, like when her family would ask her to move her foot. uh, She could do that, uh, not not 100% of the time, but very often she could do that.
0: So, Father Tad, the whole brain needs to stop functioning, not just the brainstem and not just the cerebral hemispheres. Is that correct to be considered brain death?
3: That is absolutely correct. And, you know, this is part of the problem when we bring up discussions about people dying in other countries— Because, unfortunately, in Great Britain, uh, they have this brain stem criterion that if things are dead there, then that's sufficient. It's not sufficient. Uh, That leaves plenty of gaping holes conceptually in terms of understanding that somebody has actually died.
0: You are really helping clarify a lot of things because, as I mentioned to you, I'm a dermatologist. I operate on skin cancer This isn't part of my practice, so I just hear things from people. And so it's wonderful going to the sources like you and Richard. Now, uh, here's something you you wanted to talk about philosophy. So some questions people ask us. So philosophically, how can someone remove a living heart from a dead person?
3: Yes, well, this uh, harkens back to what we opened with, the recognition. Yeah, that there are these situations that arise where we can maintain organ functions. I mean, when you talk about hearts, just think about it. When you do a, a heart transplant, you can remove a heart and you can put it into an ice chest and you can fly it halfway across the country <laughs> uh, and then break it out, warm it up, you know? And so, in other words, the, you don't require the presence of a body around it per se. So to have a body that is, you know, now deceased, but still exhibiting some level of functioning there uh, will allow you to assess that death has occurred and that now you're in a situation where removal of an organ that previously would have been considered a vital organ is no longer vital because this is an individual who is deceased and those organs with proper informed consent may be validly uh, taken, you know, for Transplantation purposes. So, I have some
0: friends who are Catholic anesthesiologists, and they feel kind of an ick factor if they take one of these patients and they're overseeing the removal of organs from them. Uh, I don't know exactly how to ask the question, but how do people get beyond that? Is it morally licit to take one of these brain dead patients, not have to have their heart and lungs stop before they take out these vital organs for transplantation?
3: Yeah, I think here, the bottom line is that brain death is death. It's not that brain death is something separate from death. It is death. It is a recognition that death already occurred, and you now do have a situation in which an individual appears in some respects not to have quite died. Because you're yes. artificially, you know, maintaining things. So even the anesthesiologist and the ick factor, uh, I think this is something where if they have a good sense that the testing was rigorously carried out, they should be completely at peace and comfortable with assisting in that situation. You know, if no corners were cut, and uh, you know there was also the mention by Dr. Rowe about the confirmatory tests. Once in a while, you do need those. Uh, Sometimes they'll do, you know, the the blood flow tests to the brain, and you'll have a situation where maybe the brain has basically expanded in the skull so much that it cuts off or herniates its own blood supply, and you have really categorically overwhelming evidence, in addition to all the clinical bedside tests, that this individual is deceased. Again, you can go forward in perfect comfort uh, in, in extracting organs, assuming that consent was given. And, you know, Pope John Paul II actually addressed this as well at one point. What he said was, therefore, a health worker professionally responsible for ascertaining death can use these criteria in each individual case as the basis for arriving at that degree of assurance in ethical judgment, which moral teaching describes as moral certainty. That's really the key here. Once where is you, that
0: quote found father
3: that's found in the address from pope john paul ii to the 18th transplantation congress uh international congress to the of the transplantation society it's in august of 2000 and um you know that's very reassuring the pope is saying look if you're a clinician you're out there making these assessments this is something you can do calmly and you know with certitude now again presupposing that no corners have been cut, and that appropriate testing has been done for this individual deceased patient.
1: Father, maybe you can help uh, shed some light as well as far as, you know, the importance of the brain. Obviously, we're talking about brain death, but when, when other organs uh, fail, like kidney failure, uh, we don't say the patient's died. Uh, as you alluded to, we can remove the heart of a person, and put in a new heart, and we don't say the person's died. Uh, is it safe to say that the soul resides in the brain? Or is that, I guess, for for people who are held up on, you know, why is brain death, you know, hypothetically, if we had a ventilator for the brain and we could continue brain function, would that be a different scenario? Or Or are we just reading into things too much, splitting hairs like that?
3: Well, I don't think it's safe to say that the soul resides in the brain. That's, you know, a temptation that does pop up here and there. The soul is a principle that uh, assures the unity and integrity of the entire organism, the entire body. We're very complex body-soul composites. And so here, I think it's what we need to, to, uh, to recognize is, I mean, you're saying... Well, when the heart stops, uh, or if the kidney stops, we don't declare somebody dead. But the difference with the brain, there is a difference. The brain stands out. The the, The brain offers a level of integration over the other operations of the body that is without parallel in any other subsystem. And so when the brain dies, there is invariably a loss of organismic integrity. That's key. No, well, That longer sounds you,
0: philosophical, Father, but keep going but it with does. it because this is something we want to understand. We've also heard the term somatic integrative unity. Ha, yeah, how does that all
3: fit? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think organismic integrity is perhaps a better term than okay. somatic integrative, but they're, they're close to each other. The notion of an organism is that which is organized in very, very discrete ways, and that includes then – contributing functions from various organ subsystems Uh, and the brain early in our lives assumes a key position in maintaining that organismic integrity it's not right at the start you know when you're a tiny little embryo just a few cells in size there is no brain yet it hasn't developed so there's a different source of organismic integrity But this, in a sense, gets handed over, if you will, as the complexity increases to the most complex organ in the entire human being, which is the brain, the central nervous system. Uh, And that then allows for this integrity to continue unabated until some catastrophe strikes that individual and removes the ability for the brain to function in that uh, specific integrating function.
0: That is excellent. Uh, From the world of philosophy, again, philosopher we know, uh, asked a question, and you've partially answered it already. You believe that there are places where brain death criteria are not rigorously applied. And so if that's the case, what is the responsibility of Catholics to help make sure that happens, just like Catholics should try to make sure physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia don't happen or abortion?
3: Yes, I think that's a very good question. You're you're sort of framing it in terms of a pro-life perspective, which it is. It really is. I mean, it's the recognition that there is a human dignity that each of us retains anytime we are alive. And so we should never make the mistake of declaring somebody to be not alive when they are alive. And if that is occurring anywhere in medicine, as I think, you know, rarely on occasion, it may, this should call forth our pro-life and human dignity sentiments in a very strong fashion. And we should say, hey, you can't conduct medicine that way. That is not something that is appropriate. It doesn't take cognizance even of, you know, basic verities like the Hippocratic Oath. Uh, It doesn't respect the human person for who they are. And so this is something we should be pushing back against. And I think you know Catholic physicians and Catholic Medical Association, for example, and the great work that they do, uh, are all the time trying to make sure that there is integrity in these diagnostic procedures, you know, that is respected uh, practically.
1: Father, when when you have one of these uh, patients that are, is declared brain dead, and uh, we're observing death as the separation of the soul from the body, are they? able to get anointing of the sick? Is that a possibility, or is that too late?
3: You know, I, um, <clears throat> I teach in two seminaries, uh, one in Boston and one in St. Louis, and I get that question when we go through the, uh, the brain death section of the bioethics class. And I tell them my honest opinion. If the testing has been done carefully, that person is not alive. Sacraments are for the living, not the dead. So if that has indicated that somebody is brain dead, dead as determined by neurological criteria, they should not receive the sacraments. Uh, They should instead, what you can do if the family arrives there, you can offer the prayers for the dead. And there's a very beautiful set of prayers that are in the same manual that we priests use for anointing of the sick. And those prayers should be used instead of anointing. You, you cannot anoint a, a dead body. And that would
0: be the same for the apostolic pardon.
3: Yes, that's correct. Once a person is deceased, then one should not use the apostolic pardon either.
0: You Noah, know, as we wrap up here in the last 90 seconds, what advice would you have for listeners who are not persuaded by the arguments that brain death is real death?
3: Well, I I think this is an area that calls people to examine more closely what medicine has done in recent years in establishing these criteria. I I think it's important to, in a sense, take the posture of the church, which is, look, we as church are not going to step in and offer specific diagnostic criteria to tell you whether people are dead or alive. That's not our role as <clears throat> as Pope, as theologians, etc. We are going to defer to the medical profession. That is their proper duty and function. And this now has a long history from, what, uh, 1968 or so, and decades and decades of uh, doing this and following up on it and Uh, accumulated practice, lived practice and wisdom that I think the medical profession brings to this. And one should look at that, you know, with, with care and attention and acknowledge, as the church does, that this is the proper prerogative of the medical profession, and that this is, at the end of the day, something that is, as the Pope points out, very much in accord with a proper anthropological understanding, a proper understanding of what it means to be a man.
0: Father Tad Paholchik, one of our friends at the National Catholic Bioethics Center, thank you so much for being with us in this incredibly enlightening interview.
3: Listen, great pleasure. So glad to be able to join you. Thanks so much. Abortion. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate
0: contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not. And their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual
3: Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com.
1: And we're back today with Dr. Doctor and the answer to the medical trivia question.
0: And fortunately, we had a neurosurgeon on beforehand who corrected the answer that I had interpreted wrong from the internet. So now we have the correct answer, uh, thanks <laughs> to Richard Rowe, neurosurgeon. So the question is, out of the first five cranial nerves, how many of them actually connect directly to the cerebral hemispheres, the two big front top parts of the brain, whereas the rest of them uh, do not connect directly? And the answer is simply that only one of the cranial nerves connects directly to the cerebrum. That's the olfactory nerve, the first cranial nerve, which actually sits high up inside your nose and then goes back and directly connects into the brain. Isn't now, one incredible? of the sources I said I read said that the second cranial nerve, the optic nerve, connects directly, but as Richard pointed out, it goes through the geniculate ganglion before it gets to the cerebrum. The other 10 go directly into the brain stem. The optic nerve takes a detour before getting to the cerebrum, and actually vision is quote seen uh, with the occipital lobes, the back part of the cerebral hemisphere. So, so there you have it. So
1: everybody in neuroanatomy right now is going to be thanking you, Tom, for their upcoming tests. <laughs> so, Ezra,
0: what struck you especially about Father Tad?
1: You know, I, I really enjoy that conversation, especially because I feel like talking to so many well, uh, well-positioned and faithful Catholics, physicians, lay folks, all the, all the above, there's so much widespread confusion and this impression that there's very clearly two sides to this issue. Uh, I'm very excited to hear from other very faithful Catholic uh, philosophers and physicians who don't think that brain death is the best way to go. However, the thing that struck me with Father Tad is how well he explained everything. I just I find myself thinking that there's going to be widespread um, favor with all of his positions. You know the, a lot of the things people are worried about, Father Tad had had reasonably thought of, and I think he expressed himself very well.
0: You know, I think it's a lot of my concern over the subject has been wondering how people are applying this and when I see somebody as down-to-earth somebody I know in Richard Rowe talking about how it's done uh, and that when the brain is entirely gone has entirely failed you can tell uh, and the fact that Pope John Paul II said this is a philosophically reasonable uh, approach that we as medical people have to figure out how to apply that made me understand it so much better
1: I think that might be a thesis that we can take kind of working forward is that it's fully within the realm of medicine to identify death. Yes. And that's not a philosophical question.
0: Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for listeners being with us again for Dr. Doctor, the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Now brought to you from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app or at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. Be sure to rate and review our show to help new listeners to find us.
1: And please send us questions or tell us how something you heard on Dr. Doctor changed your life. And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor, where we'll be discussing the other side of this coin, the the folks who have misgivings about brain death. And so you can hear both sides of the story.
0: This is Dr. Tom McGovern.
1: And Dr. Andrew Malali signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word doctor to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com doctor.